The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Philippians chapter 1. Four verses today. How about that? Let's begin, first of all, with verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what do you do when you pray? Do you pray for needs? Do you pray for those immediate things right now that are important to you? Uh, sometimes we get desperate or in trouble and, and we call out to God for that. But is that all there is to prayer? Requesting needs? I think the answer for this question comes in the opening chapter of Philippians here. The Apostle Paul has just introduced himself to the Christians at Philippi. And he's greeted them in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he mentions how he prays for them, beginning with spiritual needs. Now, in Paul's mind, spiritual needs were always critical. Uh, he did not discount material needs. He, he asked for them uh, by, on himself as well. But he knew that for Christians, the real need was in the realm of the spiritual. Consequently, when he writes to the Philippians... He is thankful above all for their fellowship or their partnership in the gospel. And this is a very important prayer. And therefore, it is a great example for for all of us to really focus on prayer. So let's begin this morning by thanksgiving in prayer. Isn't it interesting that the first words of Paul's prayer in most of his writings are always a thanksgiving? Uh, Here in Philippians, he gives thanks in regards to this church where there was much to be thankful for. But he also did the same thing in the book of Romans, in Romans 1 verse 8, to people he hadn't even met yet. And then in 1 Corinthians 1 4, he's thankful for Christians who were behaving badly. So you see, to Paul, it didn't matter their state. It didn't matter how well they were doing, how bad they were doing, how good they were, how bad they were. He rejoiced in the reality that together they were participating in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his prayers, Paul always thanked God for the evidence of spiritual blessings amongst Christians. And although Paul was sensitive to the problems in his churches, he was even more sensitive to the mercies of God. He knew people's hearts. He knew that there is no good in man that can satisfy God. He knew that Christians live a great deal of their life under the influence of the flesh and not the spirit. He knew that we all fall short of what God would like us to be. But Paul was also acquainted with God's grace and he gloried in it. He knew that God had provided wonderfully for his children, for their salvation, and for their constant, continuing growth in the Christian life. Consequently, Paul was continually thanking God for these things. 
Now, in many of the world's languages, giving thanks is a basic meaning of the word prayer. In fact, a very important Greek word for prayer is Eucharisto, from which we have the liturgical word Eucharist. The Eucharist is the Lord's Supper, but it pertains to that portion of the Lord's Supper where we are thanking God for His atoning death. So Eucharisto means giving thanks. And one of the most important Latin words for prayer is gratia, from which we comes the English word grace. Originally, it had two meanings. On the one hand, it meant the grace that God shows us in unmerited favor that we saw last week. And it also has to do with giving thanks. Uh, the word gratia means thanksgiving. But in our society today, we've kind of relegated it to giving thanks before a meal, saying grace, literally giving thanks. That's about all we think of it in, to, in today's society. It has nothing to do with, with God's favor necessarily, but thanking Him for His provisions. All, all this adds up to one very important point. For both the root meaning of the words and the example Paul teaches us in our prayers they should be filled with thanksgiving. And more than this, they should be filled with thanksgiving for the spiritual blessings. And one way in which you can measure your maturity in prayer is the amount of time you spend rejoicing and thanking God for His blessings no matter what state you're in. It's one thing to thank God when everything's going good, but it's another thing to thank God when the bottom is dropped out. And that's where we see our maturity. So the thing that Paul is most thankful for in regards to the Christians at Philippi is their fellowship with him in the gospel of Christ from the first day until now. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word fellowship has been so watered down in contemporary speech that it conveys only a slight meaning of what it used to mean. When we speak of fellowship today, we think mostly of a general camaraderieship. You know, we have church fellowship dinners. It's a time when we fellowship, we talk, we enjoy food and everything. But fellowship originally meant much more. It meant a sharing of something. In meaning sharing in something or participating in something that is greater than those who are participating and is far more meaningful in the eyes of God. So when the Bible uses the word, it means being caught up into a communion created by God. You see, when you folks meet in your small groups, and you discuss the message or, or biblical principles, you are fellowshiping together in the gospel. And this is what Paul is so excited about. Because these people in these various churches, and for us in Philippians... In Philippi, they were fellowshipping in something that was bigger than they were. It was an eternal fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know much about the church at Philippi. We do know that it was largely a Gentile church based on the names that were, are used for people. We know that it consisted of a jailer, a violent man who would have killed himself in a crisis except that Paul intervened a slave girl who had been delivered from a spirit, 
a businesswoman who traded in purple cloth from Asia and who had been a Jewish proselyte and many others. But they all had one great thing in common. They had fellowship in the gospel. And this brought them together. And Paul says that they continued in the fellowship of the gospel from the first day, the day of their salvation, until now. And this must always be the bond amongst Christians. This is really what helps us all get along. I mean, let's face it. We all have different personalities. We all have different views on many things. We all find places where we disagree. But the one thing that binds us together is the fellowship in the gospel. And you know, when you stop and think about the reality that we're going to be together for eternity, it kind of helps us to really, really bind together. You know, what's that little poem? I, I forget how it goes completely, but it says, Oh, to be in heaven with the saints of love. Saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to be down here with the saints I know, that's a different story. Something like that. I don't know exactly. But you see, the fellowship of the gospel, the reality of who we are in Christ binds us. And when people come through the door, you know, I, I think about this sometime when people come through the door in the morning and, and you greet them and you say, hey, how you doing? Welcome. Good to see you. You are welcoming a brother or a sister who is your brother or sister for eternity. And what a blessing it is. And these are the things that bind us. Now, when we think of fellowship, there are two key aspects of fellowship that we really need to understand completely. Number one, fellowship in the Spirit. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, you see... What does this mean? Well, if fellowship in the gospel means mutual participation in the gospel, then fellowship in the Spirit must mean a mutual participation in the Holy Spirit. It does not mean a fellowship between spirits, like your spirit and my spirit fellowshipping. It doesn't mean that some of us have a little bit of the Spirit or some of the Spirit, and we're trying to come together for a whole. We have all the Spirit when we come to Christ. But it means that we participate in Him. Think of it this way. As birds have their habitat in the air, as fish have their habitat in the water, so the child of God has their habitat in the Spirit. It is the very thing that binds us. So because we share a participation in the Holy Spirit, Paul admonishes the Philippians to strive to be of one love, of one accord, and of one mind. It's how you experience the riches of this fellowship. Secondly, fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, and his death. None of us can suffer for sins. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could do that. But there is a sense in which we can fellowship in sufferings. 
As we come to know something of his sufferings, we also come to know more about him and become more like him. Sometimes God's purpose in suffering is to arouse the insensitive soul, to awaken the self-satisfied person to the spiritual dimensions of life. People often reach for God in times of sufferings who would not have responded to him in any other way. But in all of this, we have the privilege of sharing in the full measure of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What an amazing privilege we have. Now, the participation we share has another dimension that we can rejoice in. And this is critical. It is the reality that God finishes what he starts. Now, this is important. It's important for you and I to grasp that because of the state you're in right now. Some of you are here this morning. Life is good. Everything's working out. Everything is just peachy. And you're just here in a great frame of mind. Others of you are here with a heavy burden, and you don't know what God is doing. It's important for us to know that God finishes what he starts. Look at Philippians 1 verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse is perhaps one of the greatest verses in the Bible that teaches the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine that no one whom God has brought to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ will ever be lost. People lack perseverance. People start things and drop them. It seems that we're always starting something and struggling to finish it. People in their church attendance, in their Bible study, in trying to help people in different things, we all have good intentions, but often it's difficult for us to complete it. But praise God, He is not like that. God never starts anything He doesn't finish. And the first thing that I want you to see deals with our security. There are a few other verses that come alongside Philippians 1, 6 that are very bold. <clears throat> John 10, verse 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, not even you. Now, if you recall a couple years ago when we were in the book of John, when we came to this passage, I shared an illustration with you that I think is, is an amazing deal. Oftentimes when shepherds would be out with their sheep and they might get kind of far away from home at the end of the day, so oftentimes they would go to the local town or city and out front there were these large, large pens and they would herd their sheep into these pens and they would go in and spend the night in the city. And the pens could be full of multiple sheep herders' sheep. 10, 15 sheep herders would all put their sheep in there. 
in the morning when the shepherd would come out, he would call his sheep. And fascinating, only his sheep would come out. All the others would stay there because the sheep had come to know the voice of the shepherd. And I could just see this packed pen of sheep and the sheep coming through. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, you know, walking out to follow the shepherd. But fascinating, as each shepherd came out, only his sheep came. And Jesus is saying, my sheep, mine, they hear my voice. But guess what? They will never be lost. If you're sitting here this morning and you know Christ, you are secure for eternity. Let's not leave it there. What can separate us from God? Romans 8 makes that very clear, verse 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from Christ. Nothing. And if that doesn't cause you to rejoice and gain victory over your trials, I don't know what will. But you know, the doctrine is also found in less formal passages in literally dozens of places in the Bible. Consider, David wrote in Psalm 138, verse 8, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. I love the way the King James says it. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. You know that thing you're dealing with right now? That impossible thing that's got you down? The Lord will perfect it. The Lord will work through it. In fact, the Lord has allowed that in your life to perfect something that He is using for a far greater purpose. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, therefore, because of my everlasting love, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Put your fleshly desires aside and let God's faithfulness reign in your life. He has sealed you. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And how is this possible? Verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Yeah, we're going to be afflicted, but you're not going to be crushed. You're going to be perplexed. God, what are you doing? I don't know where you're going. What's happening here? But you won't be driven to despair. Persecuted? Sure, but not forsaken. Struck down? Yep, but not destroyed. Why? 
because he's bringing you to be with him. You talk about a powerful truth. Now, the doctrine is also suggested by images that are applied to believers throughout the Bible. We are compared to trees that don't wither, Psalm 1-3. To the great cedars of Lebanon that flourish from year to year, Psalm 92, verse 12. To houses built on a rock, Matthew 7:24. To Mount Zion that cannot be moved, Psalm 125, verse 1. You see, these passages teach that the one who had been born again by God will never be lost. God never abandons his plan. God never begins a work he doesn't finish. And he who's begun that work in you, guaranteed he's going to perform it till Christ Jesus comes. That's the power and joy you and I have to live. So stop fighting to gain the temporal when God has guaranteed the eternal, which, by the way, started the moment you were saved. You see, you're already in the eternal. Your address just hasn't changed yet. You are currently living in the eternal plan of God. Think about that. Now, this, of course, brings us to a very powerful reality. It's all of God. There are many who do not like this teaching because they would like to think that they're responsible for their salvation. They prefer to believe that they can be accepted by God on the basis of their good works and that our final salvation depends more or less on how faithful or persevering we can be. This is not the Bible. And it is, it is contradicted by every moment of the Christian's experience. If we are saved, it is only because God comes to us first. Consider Paul's words in Romans 3, verses 10 through 11. As it is written, none are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The only reason you seek for God is because He has drawn you to Him, quickened Him. The Spirit has influenced you and drawn you to Himself. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man, the unsaved man, he can't understand the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Apart from the Spirit, you know nothing. You and I, before Christ, are spiritually dead. And dead corpses don't get up and seek things. You need to be made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is true of all of us. I am like that, and you are like that. You and I don't begin to meet God's standard of righteousness, and you don't know it unless God reveals your failure to you. And still, God comes to you, opens your eyes, gives you the faith to believe, and draws you to himself. Now, all of this is an amazing truth. But why? Why does he do all this? Okay, I know heaven. I know he loves me. He saved me. He set me apart. I'm going to heaven. I got that. But if I'm currently living in the eternal, if I've been currently set apart, what is the purpose? Have you ever got up in the morning and just kind of asked yourself, what is my purpose? I can remember 
when I was saved. I was 17 years old. And of course, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, what college I was going to go to, where I was going to go, what I wanted to do. I didn't have a clue. Not, not one clue. I remember my dad asking me what I was going to do, and I said, well, I was an avid skier at the time. I said, I want to be a ski bum. And I can remember him saying, well, who's going to pay for your ski bum? And, and I mistakenly said, well, you're doing a good job of it now. <laughs> the last thing I ever said about that. But, but seriously, do you ever think, what is my purpose is it my career? Is it, is it following somebody? Is it making a certain amount of money? Is it getting a good... Re- what is my purpose? Well, let's look at our real purpose. Let me tell you. So when you walk out of here this morning, there's not one of you who will not know what your purpose is. All right? You ready for this? Understand that If God has saved you, He has saved you for a purpose. He has saved you for a marvelous eternity with Him for sure. But there's far more than that. Look at verse Philippians 1.6 again. I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, God has saved you for a purpose that he is beginning right now. The verse says that God is determined to do a good work in you. Now, let that sink in for a minute, okay? Some of you get up, come to church, get up tomorrow, go to work, blah, 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 blah. You mean to tell me there's something greater? Yes. What is the good work that he's talking about here in Philippians 1.6? Well, the answer is not spelled out in Philippians 1.6, but it is spelled out very clearly in Romans 8. In Romans 28.28, we, we love this verse, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. We know that for those who love God, that means those of you who love God who are his child, those of you who have Christ Jesus in your heart, we know that for those, you people, put your name in there, all things work together for good. I'm sure all of you are thinking of something right now that you'd like to say, okay, preacher, what about this? How about this? What about this failure in my life? What about this bonehead mistake I made? You trying to tell me that works together for good? Uh Uh-huh. But the key is in verse 29. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestinated, get this, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, we hear preachers all the time on the radio writing books and everything that God wants you rich. 
He doesn't want you to have problems. You just need more faith. I have one word for that. Garbage. Ask the Apostle Paul, who probably had the greatest faith of any Christian who walked the earth and spent a portion of his life in prison in chains before he died. Where's his mansion? Where's his glorious faith? It has nothing to do with that at all. There is only one thing God wants for you and me, and that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is your single most important goal in life. That is your purpose, to be conformed to the image of God. And yes, all the messiness as well as all the good is allowed by God to prepare you to understand what it means to walk in His sight. You've heard me say this over and over again. I'll say it again. We get into situations for one of three things. Either we put ourselves there because of a bonehead decision, or God puts us there, or Satan puts us there. But they all come through the permissive will of God. God allows everything in your life, and He allows you to make the mistakes. Because it's through the pain and suffering that you begin to understand more clearly what it is He's doing. And it's through those trying times that you can look to Christ wanting to reflect his image and know how he experienced all things. If you go through the life of Christ and you look at all the things he did and how he handled situations, the abuse, the criticism, the cross, you look at how when he went to the garden and he prayed, God, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus Christ didn't want to die. He didn't want to experience that. God, is there any way, Father, that this can be taken from me? But then he said, but not my will, yours be done. And you see, when you and I understand Christ and we understand what it means to reflect his image, we know that in the trial we're in, we beg him to have it removed. But if he doesn't, not my will, yours be done. And that's the power of the gospel that united these people and allowed them to have the strength to endure, knowing that God was working in them in such a way that he would perform it until the day Christ called us home. That's the power of the gospel. That is the strength that galvanizes you and I. I mean, just think about this for a minute. God is so delighted with Jesus Christ that he has called all of us to himself in order that Jesus Christ might be reproduced in us. That Christ can be seen all over the earth in us as little Christs. We're not divine, of course. But we who were vile, sinful wretched people have been made holy, have been set apart to be conformed to his image. Now, if you can just allow that truth to penetrate your heart, 
and know that your very existence is for one purpose, to be conformed to the image of Christ. You think of how much he loves you. I mean, we know he came and died for us. We know before the foundation of the world, he set us apart. We know that, that in immense love, knowing that we could do nothing, that we're all in a Christless eternity on our way to an eternal separation from him, yet because he loved us so much, his son took on the form of man and came to earth and lived his life those 33 years to show us the Father. That was his purpose. And then to die, to die to pay for our sins. And then out of overwhelming love that we'll never fathom this side of glory, his goal for you and I is to be conformed to the image of that very Christ. The Bible says that we're joint heirs with Christ. That means that everything that the Father gave Christ, he's given to you and I. Are you living that way? You are royalty. You belong to an eternal family of God from heaven. <clears throat> and God has promised to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You are eternally wealthy. And by being conformed to the image of God, you understand what it means to react and act like Christ. You begin to understand that when the trials come, how would Jesus handle this? You know, we had those bracelets that were popular for so long. What would Jesus do? Well, if you're being conformed to the image of God, you know what Jesus would do. Was Jesus ever afraid? Was he ever worried about tomorrow? He spent his ministry teaching people how to trust and walk in the Spirit, that all their needs would be taken care of. Think of the immense gift that's been given to you and I, freely, freely, freely given to you and I. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we might be Christ to the world. And I'll tell you what's happening in our country today is we're too concerned about achieving what we want rather than surrendering to what Christ wants. And the world is not seeing Christ's church. They're seeing a church that's too much like the world. And that's why there's very little influence. When you go out in the community reflecting Christ, I guarantee you, you're going to be a magnet. You're going to be a magnet because people are going to say to you, how? How do you do this? How do you get through this? Well, it's not me. It's Christ living in me. But they're seeing. They're seeing. You know, it's that old, old cliche I love to say, say all the time that, that you and I ought to be witnessing every day of our lives. Everyone we come in contact with, we should witness to. Every single person, no matter who it is, on our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, wherever it is, every person we come to, we should be witnessing to. And when all else fails, use words. 
They need to hear the words because it's the gospel that draws them. But when you're living in the image of Christ, you will be a magnet. And God has given that to us as an amazing privilege. Oh, I love you so much to die for you, but guess what? Why don't you be like my son? I'll give you the power to be like Jesus. Because I'm giving you his spirit to indwell you. And by the way, I'm going to give you this book, this collection, this volume of 66 books that will guide you in all truth. It's free. Here you go. So, what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us to learn to fall on Jesus. God does not take great pleasure in forcing us to see ourselves as we really are. But he knows that we will never rely on him until we realize that we cannot rely on ourselves. The work he has begun is purging ourselves of you and filling us up with him. There's no other way to be satisfied, and God knows this. It is why the work he has begun will never stop. He who began a good work in you will perform it, and sometimes that work hurts. Working all the mulch. Yesterday, spreading, what, three or four truckloads of mulch? I felt it. It hurt. But it was worth it. Our lives are not always going to be easy. God never promised us a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. But he promises a life hidden in Christ. It will never stop until we are called to glory. And why? Because his love is so great, he wants us to experience what it is to be full of Jesus and living the life he's called us to live. Not one person in here this morning, not one of you, does not have a life planned out before the foundation of the world by Jesus Christ. The question is, are you living it? Are you still struggling to get by on your own strength and your own wisdom and your own mind? If he's going to increase, then we got to de decrease. Amen? Their common bond was the gospel. What is your common bond this morning? Father, we thank you so much again for your amazing grace. Lord, the words of Paul stir our hearts to a reality that so many of us just miss because we just think we know what's important to us. I pray that you would give us a spirit of surrender. I pray that you would give us a spirit that would just lay everything at your feet. I pray that you would give us a spirit that lives to walk with you. And Lord, I'm just going to trust you to work in the hearts of each one of us. If there's any here this morning who really don't have a relationship with Jesus, all this sounds good, but it makes no sense. I pray that you'd bring us to us so we could sit down and show them through the word of God the reality of the life that God has for them. Thank you for what you've done, and we'll give you the praise 
And all God's people said, amen. God bless.